Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. This is the first episode on a mini-series specifically focusing on the fascinating and unique local government institution of New York City Hall. To kick things off, today we're speaking to Mayor de Blasio's recent appointee to lead the Office of Criminal Justice, Marcus Solor. Marcus brings an incredible background to the role, drawing on extensive academic work as well as roles within local and federal government. This informs an incredibly rich perspective. However, the thing you'll notice about Marcus is his intense focus on being the quietest voice in the room. His view is that progressive reforms come when we first focus on listening before proffering solutions. Today we talk about the challenges with gun violence and crime New York is facing since COVID began, the success his office has had in engaging the community directly in solutions, and the reasons behind the backlog in the local jail system. Please enjoy my conversation with Marcus Solar. Marcus, super excited for this conversation in what is an absolutely pivotal time for the city of New York. Uh, emerging from a pretty crazy year, and that's not only as it relates to criminal justice. I've provided listeners a little background in the introduction to this podcast, but want to officially welcome you to the podcast and, and really offer a minute for yourself to quickly run through your experience and essentially how you ended up as the director for the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. Thank you. Much appreciated for the invitation. I came here to the United States about 20 years ago with my wife, who is original from Brooklyn. So I look for something to do. I thought always interested in public safety. I have started original academia. I landed in a city agency, the Civilian Complaint Review Board, worked for many years in policy and data analysis as the executive director for policy, did a bunch of other projects nationally and in New York City. And ultimately, I was given the opportunity to work as the chief of staff for uh, the former director of the office, uh, worked with her as our chief of staff for five, six years. And then Mayor de Blasio gave me, I think, the opportunity of a lifetime, which was to be the director of the office. It has been really a pleasure to do that and to work with an incredible team of colleagues here and in City Hall and are extraordinarily dedicated to criminal justice issues and obviously turning the city into a much better place. So very straightforward trajectory, love every minute of it. Awesome. Awesome background. So criminal justice is a bit of a nebulous term, I think, to a lot of people. It can encompass a lot of things. So we'd love to ask you pretty directly, what does criminal justice mean to you? What's a fair criminal justice system? And how do we differentiate it from, for example, corrections or specifically law enforcement or public safety as a whole? So it's a very good question. Criminal justice means different things to different people, as you said, but to me, it's quite straightforward. Is about addressing a need that we have to create a just and safe society for all of us and to do it in a democratic way in which all of us participate in defining what we think makes a safe city, what it makes, what it makes a safe city. So in that regards, I have to work with the criminal justice means that you're working with a bunch of different agencies and entities to make sure a that people who are involved in the system in one way or another are properly treated and dealt with and move through the process. So yes, you do have police, you have corrections, but you also have the core system, you also have the defenders, you have multiple community organizations that are involved 
in providing services from re-entry to alternatives to incarceration, et cetera. And then most importantly for me is you have the citizens who ultimately are the ones who define what, again, what kind of system you have and what kind of public safety strategy you want for the city. To me, fairness is defined primarily by whether or not we allow to have that inclusive communication and deliberation in the city about in which way we want the police to police us, in which way, which way we want to have a carceral system, what type of jails, what type of incarceration process we want to have, how do we treat people, what happens to you when you go and deal with the court system, what kind of interactions you expect, etc. And so ultimately, it's about creating those conditions where, as I said, people and go, people then interact with the process and people who ultimately benefit from the process in one way or the other, right, creating a safer environment, can tell you, A, I feel that I was treated fairly. I felt that there was equity, there was inclusion, and there was, and I can trust what we did. I think that's, that's how I think about a criminal justice system. Let's take a look at how public safety and, and criminal justice has evolved in yeah. New York City over the past decade. So I know you personally haven't been involved, for example, in the mid-90s, but I think it will help listeners maybe contextualize the rest of our conversation if they understand where New York has come from and maybe what challenges around criminal justice it has addressed in the past and maybe what still needs to be overcome because now it's one of the country's safest cities, but it wasn't always like that. So if we look back to the 70s and through to today, are you able to maybe weave a narrative or tell a story of that journey that touches on the main issues relating to criminal justice and public safety? Yes, I think I can. New York City was not different from many other cities in the United States in the 1960s, 1970s, and experienced significant increases in crime, and particularly violent crime. In that regards, New York City was not exceptional. The trajectory was quite clear, and the images are very vivid in people's mind. What it changes around the 1990s in the new in New York, where a the city gradually became safer, and I think that there are different explanations as to why the city became safer, but certainly, I think there were at least three factors that were important. One is additional investments in policing and different strategies in policing to have an important role. I think the second factor is there was greater level of coordination among city agencies and among all members of, of the government structure, a very laser focus on bringing more safety. And ultimately, I think the citizens, the citizens of the city, the residents of the city decided, you know what, we need to create a city that is safer. Uh, we need to do that ourselves so we don't have to wait for others. And I think that was the most important development. I think gradually when you see the statistics, definitely we saw big improvements in the 90s. Thing kind of became stable around the 2000, 2012. But then in 2012 and 13, particularly around 2013 and 14, we saw a big difference, a big change. And a in part was a reaction to what has been a perceived by many communities as over-policing and unfair forms of policing. In part was the recognition from, again, the citizens of New York taking charge and saying, we just want to have a safer city and we're going to take it to a different level. And I think also there was a lot of changes in the way government agencies and specifically public safety and criminal justice agencies operated that a, turned the city into 
quite frankly, a much different city, which is what people experience. So how that specifically turns translates into something concrete. During the 2000s, we saw 500 murders on average. During that period of time, 2017, 2018, 2019, we were under 300 murders, around 300 murders. Shootings were about 1,500, 1,600. We were down to 800 shootings in 2017, 18, 19. In this crime, total crime in the city, uh, major felony crime, which is the way we define it, went well before 100,000. And if you compare crime in New York City today, in 2021, despite all the perspective by index crimes, we are at levels that we haven't seen since the 1950s. I think that, it, again, was possible because citizens got much more involved in deciding that the neighborhoods needed to be saved. And there was much higher levels of coordination among city agencies and a much more clear strategy and focus to make that happen. You know, all the investments and resources that the government center on making the city safer. And that was all of that worked together quite well. I think you mentioning the level of engagement that increased throughout that period is a great segue to the next topic. Really, last summer, we saw a, a massive call for change in how policing is carried out. And as a result, law enforcement agencies throughout the country saw budgets cut, resources stretched. LA slashed, I think it was $150 million from their police budget. New York City reallocated a billion from policing to education, social services. However, fast forward to today, I think it was just this week, Portland announced an emergency $5 million bump to policing in response to record homicides and insecurity among residents. And Minneapolis has proposed their police budget now risen to pre-George Floyd levels. And obviously incoming New York City Mayor is ex-police Captain Adams, who wasn't a supporter of defunding the police. So in your eyes, I know it's a convoluted question, what's the balance between ensuring a police force that is answerable and proportionate to the community, right? Like not driving around in armored vehicles, but is also robust enough to tackle violent crime that eventually does affect the most vulnerable in our community? So I, I think this is the way in which I'm going to try to answer your question. One is every community, and certainly I think New York City is not an exception that needs to make a decision as to how it's going to address the main challenges they face, right? In particular, New York City, despite, again, better numbers than we have seen in other parts of the country in terms of both murders and shootings and other violent crimes, we continue to see that violence is much higher than it was in 2017, 18, and 19, right? So we want to have a response to that. As I was saying before, I think the best way to do that is to allow the citizens to have a say into that matter, is to democratize the process and to tell people, to allow people to say, you know, this is how we feel. Certainly one of those options is a people have expressed themselves in the voting booth and as to, and certainly the new administration will have a lot of latitude in deciding how to make the city safe. But there are two other things to consider. One is what the evidence tells us, right? And what we know is then you need to maintain a certain level of policing in order to address the challenge of violent crime. It's not just about a number, it's not about a figure, but the research shows is systematically that a, there are police strategies that work, a, and you cannot ignore that. But we also know something from the last five, six years under this administration, and I think particularly under this administration more than any other place in the, in the United States, then when you do systematic investment in involving members from the community in civilianizing their response to crime, citizens' response 
uh, through organized groups, sometimes less organized groups, through organizations, etc., that play an extraordinarily important role in you know reducing violence in and improving and making the safer neighborhoods without the pressure and the fears of over-policing. I think the record is out there. We have seen that in the city of New York. I'm not just going to talk specifically about programs that we run from my office, like the Mayor's Action Plan for Neighborhood Safety, or a lot of our crisis management system of violence interrupters, et cetera, then I think their success speaks for itself. We have done evaluations of this and share it, and they are quite clear. But I think overall, that is what we see in every intervention that we have funded in recent years. They are very effective when you make those decisions of the, on the basis of evidence and what is best for communities and with the input from communities. So, for instance, I'll give you a very concrete one. This summer, we knew that gun violence was, was a problem and still a persistent problem in the city. And we decided to invest in a precision employment program, getting referrals from DAs, from the police department, from community groups of those individuals who were at higher risk of being involved in gun violence. That program reached out to almost 1,600 people, 1,500 to 1,600 people. We think is has contributed to curbing violence in the city. We know our participants have not been involved in incidents of gun violence. Etc. And those are the kind of things that I think are important. Developing programs that address a specific problem that you try to deal with, specifically gun crime, I mean, gun violence, with the support of the government in coordination with a lot of different agencies, uh, making sure that it's driven by communities, <laughs> making sure that folks from the community are the ones who ultimately benefit the most from these programs. Again, um, we have a ton of statistics, what you can bother your audience with, but they're on our side and show then these programs work and make the city safer. So I think my answer to your question is, again, democracy, evidence, and a lot of coordination among agencies. Okay, so that, that leads me on to a question, and this is one I think of a lot because I, I work with local governments yeah. all day, every day. We talk about democratizing and increasing engagement and hearing from more of our residents to inform some of our st- strategy and decision-making. As Maybe you've experienced in the past, Marcus, and as a lot of city leaders out there do, unfortunately, oftentimes the voices that we do hear are not always a representative slice of all of our community. And perhaps the folks that you might hear on a regular basis are not always those that are maybe most affected by changes to the criminal justice system. So how do you go about ensuring that when you are putting together an action plan or you are creating strategy or reviewing evidence, that it does include that New Yorker from East Brooklyn or Brownsville or the Bronx and isn't just coming from maybe a little bit more of a privileged subsection that knows how to interact and knows how to make their voice heard to the city? So I'm going to give you two very concrete examples on how we ensure that in the office. 2014, in response to increases in violence in public housing, we created the Mayor's Action Plan for Neighborhood Safety, we were, we, where we went to the 15-tap public housing sites in the city developments where we thought contributed to the largest portion of, of violence, right? So these 15 developments had almost 20% of crime in public housing. And instead of going from this top-down approach that often the government takes, what we did was to start listening to people. And in order to create, to listen to people, what you have to do is to create a mechanism by which they can do it. So everybody has heard, or many folks have talked about ComStat, right? A, which is the way police were doing things. We created neighborhood staff, which is reverse that. 
approach and bring residents to these meetings where you are putting them there, showing them data, where you bring about 10 different city agencies or more, and then you ask them, tell us what you want in terms of public safety. Tell us how you develop your own plan. Tell us where you're seeing problems. So it's not about us putting there a bunch of indicators and telling people we are doing great. It's about them saying things like, okay, this indicator that you have here is not showing the progress that we need to make. And it's about a very important thing, which I think is forgetting in terms of democratization, as you said, which is you need to ultimately be responsive to the public. And you do it by going there and talking to people, listening to what they have to say. And that's that's what we have a procedures by, again, they every single one of these public housing sites develop their own strategic plans and public safety plans, and they share with us and tell us how to invest, including in many instances, again, how to invest funds and what are the best way to do things. Similarly, when it comes to issues of gun violence through our Cure Violence Crisis Management Network, what we do is now we send a bunch of people that are government workers telling people what to do. What we do is we hire and contract and with more than 60 grassroots organizations. These are people who are constantly in touch with residents. And these are the folks who are telling us, these many of them have been involved in the criminal justice system. And these are the folks who tell us what's going on on the ground and, and, and who run their own programs with a lot of latitude. And we are just here to support them. And another final example would be all the work that we do, for instance, in reentry and rehabilitation. We don't do that from, again, from, oh, we want to create a program. Let me just tell you how we do it and we'll run it from here. Again, we work with these organizations. We know these organizations hire a significant number of people, again, who have been involved in the criminal justice system. Many of them actually are led by people who are involved in the criminal justice or have been involved in the past with the criminal justice system. And they tell us what is best in order to rehabilitate folks into society to make sure that there is a successful re-entry into society after they leave prison and they return into our communities. It's, it's a change in culture. It's a change in perspective. My goal is not to tell people what to do. My goal is to engage folks in conversations and to try to do the opposite of what I'm doing here. I'm doing a lot of talk of what I want and I am more interested every day is on listening to what the many programs and the many people and vendors and that we work with tell us about how we can make this city safer. I don't have a secret recipe other than listening very carefully to the experience that they have. So this is a pretty straightforward question directly tied to you recently coming into the role. I know you're working for the office previously, but as you're coming in and assuming the role of the director, is there one issue that's top of your list that you're looking to address? So as a director, the top priority that I have been addressing is the connection between the gun violence that we see in the streets and the violence that we see in correctional facilities. I think that is one of the topics and I want to see a lot of folks don't and I'm trying to address better. A lot of folks think about that the problems end once you incapacitate an individual, even if it's a temporary incapacitation by sending them to a local jail. And in reality, what we see is that there is a continuum between the street and our correctional facilities. So I am trying very hard to figure out exactly, again, 
by asking a lot of questions, by listening very carefully, what else we can do better in order to make sure that A, we reduce gun violence in the streets, and number two is we make sure that that violence doesn't go into the facilities or from the facilities comes into the streets. I can tell you two things which are driven also through, you know, things, very concrete things from my experience. One is there are a lot of these conflicts that drive violence in the city are coming from interpersonal conflicts, are coming from conflicts and disputes between neighbors, between people who know each other. Disputes is the number one reason why we end up in fightings. And sometimes these disputes are about minor. Well, those disputes, again, go back into the island. Sometimes those disputes are more institutionalized because people belong to gangs or crews. Sometimes they are not necessarily connected to gangs or crews, just people having these conflicts. And it's about providing the tools by which people decide that it's, we need a little bit of a cultural change and we don't need to solve our disputes by shooting at each other, by trying to violently attack each other. I think that is a significant, I mean, that is my most important challenge and the one that I think about every day, what I can do to reduce gun violence in the streets and what I can do to support the goal of reducing gun violence, sorry, of reducing violence in correctional facilities, including Rikers, of course. Interesting. So so on that cultural change piece, obviously there's not going to be one single answer, but if you were to maybe crystallize that issue, is it a lack of professional opportunities? Is it impoverishment? Is it an issue with ingrained narratives around how to respond to specific problems? I know just yesterday we've seen a, a unfortunate killing of a really prominent rapper in Memphis, which has continued a, a trend of increasing gun violence throughout the United States. If you're able to crystallize it pretty simply, what is actually driving this ongoing systemic issue where uh, maybe menial issues are resulting in, in big problems, big conflicts, and ultimately gun violence and, and homicide? Very good and complex question. I would say two things. One is I was strongly confident, as I said before, when in 2017, 2018, 2019, this, this city was in a situation where we finally broke the barrier of under 300 murders and the barrier of under 800 shootings. And I said, oh, we got the right recipe. And then the pandemic came. And then obviously their demands for for social justice came and recognition that there is so much to do that show us that we have to be much more humble about what we believe than we know and we don't know. So I, I'm That's the first thing. I think a a great degree of humility is important in addressing this kind of question. Because a lot of people who claim to know what what are the very simple causes, I think, don't have that kind of humility and understanding. The second is the frailty of our system, right? I think the pandemic has shown us how quickly things can turn, right? How you can have a system, again, that is working pretty well. And then in a matter of two or three months, things are spiked. To make it very concrete, in, in February 2020, we were trending in a situation where we were having less than 50 shootings in this a, per month in the city of New York. In just three in just three or four months, we trip we went to actually around 250 shootings. So you have to ask to ask the question how that happens, right? And it's I think it's a combination of those factors that you are mentioning. One is communities that we thought have already figured out an answer to the problem of gun violence 
were not as robust as we and solid as we thought. And there were a lot of problems within those communities that now all of a sudden exploded. Number two is individuals that we thought basically have decided not to engage in gun violence. All of a sudden, we're coming to the world of gun violence and crime. And it's understanding what was driving those individuals, why they were deciding to address their interpersonal conflicts through gun violence, etc. And I think the third is, quite frankly, it was very difficult for government as a whole to provide a solid response. And I'm not talking just about the police, I'm talking about the entire structure of government. Obviously, the pandemic disrupted a lot of our ability to reach out to people, to connect with people, to meet with people. So obviously, police enforcement data showed that arrests went down. Our vendors in the CMS world were not as effective in meeting with folks. Obviously, the pandemic impacted everybody. And I think, again, that combination of trauma in the community and the difficulty that government had to reach out to folks became an explosive situation. Now, what we are seeing is certainly we have tried, and I think more than tried, we have restored a lot of our government operations to full functioning. And we see a lot of the things that we know we need to have. And what we see is a lot of our, again, community partners working very effectively. What we just need to address is the underlying trauma that people have experienced. And this is why initiatives like precision employment that I mentioned, much more investment in mental health, greater levels of investment in not just in employment opportunities, but in education, in housing and other initiatives that bring a stability to people's lives are extraordinarily important to restore neighborhoods, to restore communities, and to, quite frankly, heal individuals as well. So on a more, I guess, operational point or question, a recent report outlined the struggle of moving inmates through the criminal justice system, and this was specifically directed at Rikers in a timely manner, basically more time spent in jail. If we were to summarize this issue quickly, what is actually driving this and, and how do we solve it without compromising due process? So one of the things that happen of being fully restored is the fact that we don't have still a justice system, court defenders, DAs, etc. It's operational to the same levels that we have in 2019. How this connects to due process is everybody's entitled to a speedy public trial in the state of New York and under the U.S. Constitution. Right now, what we see is cases are lagging. And that has very concrete impacts. In response to, obviously, a, the increase in gun violence, what we saw was a, a police arrested a significant number of people. A significant number of people were sent to jail as remanded by judges because they were involved in murders, attempted murders, and a, other forms of gun-related gun crimes. And what we need is for the system to very quickly process those cases. So those individuals can either be sent to prison or back to the community in case they are not guilty, right? What we have right now is jails, which are not designed to operate like prisons, operating like prisons. What we have right now is people in conditions which I call of indefinite indefinite detention because they don't know when their cases are going to be resolved. They don't know when they're going to have the day in court. And what I actually want is people to have the day in court again. So we have a resolution of the case. And for those individuals, then we'll go back to the community. They will be in the community and we will provide services. We can support it. And for those who will go upstate and will be sentenced to prison, upon return, we will invest in reentry strategies to make sure that we can rehabilitate them after 
they have finished and completed the sentences. Certainly, that is what we operationally, what we saw is, what we see is a system that works, or a system, sorry, that worked for a long time, and then a system that has not been yet be able to provide a full response to the pandemic. Fantastic. So for our traditional closing question, it's not criminal justice specifically focused, but you can certainly answer it in that vein. Pretty simple. What is one accepted truth of local government that you, Marcus, think is incorrect? Then the government cannot be effective. Then the government is the problem. I refuse to accept that premise. I think it's false. I think the government, a democratic government in partnership with communities can make a difference and make a difference. And I see that every day. Awesome. Concise. Well, Marcus, this was a really interesting conversation that went, I think, much broader than I originally anticipated. It's evident you're extremely passionate about ensuring that everyone, I guess, whether in a housing development or someone walking their dog in a park at night or even an incarcerated individual has an equal opportunity to a healthy future. So really appreciate your time today and uh, excited to see how your work progresses over the next couple of years. Thanks for your time. Much appreciated. Thank you. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.